Looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dawaskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dawaskin. All right. Thank you, Roy, for that amazing introduction. You get the show going and you did not fail this week. I am pumped for episode 26 of the Jeff Dewaskin Show. Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, Jeff Dewaskin. Good to have you here for episode 26. And it's a doozy. And a doozy it is. That's right. I have comedic legend Carl Gottlieb in the house. That's right. You heard me right. Carl Gottlieb. Jeff, isn't that the guy that co-wrote The Jerk with Steve Martin? Hell yeah, it is. Hey, Jeff, isn't that the guy that wrote the screenplay for the movie Jaws? Oh, my God. Yes, he's on the show. And we got a great conversation coming up in just a little bit. And you're going to love it. Love it. Ah, why am I saying things twice? I don't know. It's probably because I'm on a sugar high from eating all this candy left over from Halloween. We only got like four people that came to the house. I got like 500 pounds of candy and there are only one way to get rid of it in my tummy. That's right. (laughs) So I am really on a sugar high right now doing the show. I got all dressed up and everything. I was a doctor, but not just any doctor. I was sexy Dr. Fauci. That's right. Sexy isn't just for the ladies. I could be sexy too. I put a picture of it at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter. Go check it out. Reply to that tweet. I want to see what you dressed up as. Show me your costumes from this past Halloween. I'm excited to see it. See if you can go mano y mano with sexy Dr. Fauci. And now it's time for the social media tip. So one thing that people always ask me over and over again, and I know I've mentioned it on an earlier episode, it's important to retweet and like other people. That's how you get your stuff noticed. The more you engage, the more people will engage with you. May not happen right away, but over time, that's the long-term strategy. Don't get frustrated. Just give more than you take, and eventually everything works out. I promise. I promise. Okay, the other cool thing that I saw on Twitter this past week, The Mandalorian. Any tweet that had hashtag The Mandalorian in it, when you clicked the like button, a little baby Yoda showed up where the heart was. It was adorable, but it's gone already, and I wanted to tell you all about it, but now it's gone. Maybe look for it this Friday when episode two comes out of The Mandalorian. If you're not watching The Mandalorian, highly recommend it. Also, I highly recommend episode 19 where I talk with Dan Zare, Star Wars expert, about The Mandalorian in the episode titled This is the Way. Check that out. I also talked to Dan in episode five about The Empire Strikes Back. If you love Star Wars, this guy knows everything about Star Wars. One other thing I just wanted to uh, mention that's kind of cool is there's this app called Humbly, H-U-M-B-L-Y, and they reached out to me. It's a podcast app, and what you do is you go to the app, and you can listen to any show that's on Apple Podcasts, but they put a little ad in front of it, and then they donate five cents every time. So those ads are supplied by the app itself, so I don't make any money. No No one's making money in that way, but they donate money to charity, a charity that you choose when you sign up for the app. So it's kind of cool. Check it out, Humbly, H-U-M-B-L-Y. It's in the uh, Apple App Store. And that's the social media tips. 
And now it's time for this week's sponsor. I love that you all have been taking the time to support all the past sponsors of the Jeff Dewaskin Show. It means so much to me. It means so much to them. And it helps keep the lights on, as you know. This week's sponsor is the Optigrab. That's right, the Optigrab. Do your glasses constantly slip off your nose? Are you constantly saying, damn these glasses? Well, no more. No more. <laughs> now with the Optigrab, with its patent-pending pressure-on-the-bridge technology, it keeps the glasses where they belong, on your face. That's right, and the revolutionary nose break helps prevent slippage, all part of the Navin R. Johnson Company, and this is one of their best products ever. So I want you all to grab an Optigrab. They may be in limited supply right now. There is a pending class action lawsuit, but as soon as that's cleared up, I'm sure they'll be available. You'll love them. You'll never say, damn, these glasses again with Optigrab. Uh I don't have the phone number, but if you grab a phone book and you just look up Navin R. Johnson, that's his phone number. It's right there. Call him up. Say, I need an Optigrab. I heard about it on the Jeff Dewaskin Show. All right. Well, definitely grab one of those. That's definitely going to change your life. I promise you that. I do. I do. I do. And so, you know, support our sponsors. Again, that's how we keep the lights on. It's it's what keeps the Jeff Dewaskin Show going week after week after week. And you know what else helps week after week? All of you guys listening, subscribing, liking, sharing with your friends, telling all your friends, leaving five-star reviews at Apple Podcasts. It all helps. Help me get the word out of the Jeff Dewaskin Show. We're growing and growing and growing each week, and I can't thank you enough. You guys are the best fans ever, and that's why I'm here. I do it for you. And you know what else I do for you? I bring you awesome guests, like our next guest, comedic legend Carl Gottlieb. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation, and here it is. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're here with Emmy winner, actor, writer, director, and comedy legend Carl Gottlieb. Carl, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. All right. So excited to have you here. You've done a million things. I want to let's can we start with uh, the comedy background? You were part of the committee? I began an improvisational comedy in San Francisco in 1963 in a show called The Committee, which along with Second City and a couple of others is the uh, ancestor of all improv. And I, I began as a stage manager, then I was a director, then I appeared in some skits, sketches on stage. Then I went to New York and left the company for a while. Then I came back as an actor in 1966 and uh, that changed my life. I was there from, I was in San Francisco as an actor in a hit show from 66 to 68, coinciding with the Summer of Love and the Hate Ashbury and all the free speech movement, all the turmoil and tumult of the 60s. <laughs> then in 68, the show moved to Los Angeles and I moved with it. We played on the Sunset Strip. And we had our own theater there, and we played there for two years. And toward the end of the two years, uh, I was scouted and picked up by various you know, commercial television. The Smothers Brothers hired me as a writer. Robert Altman hired me as an actor for the movie MASH. And like, you know, one thing led to another, basically. Pretty awesome. What was it like to be part of the movie MASH? That must have been a- It was great. It was an improvising actor, an improvising director, uh, a screenplay that was kind of got thrown out the window on the first day of shooting, and that the screenwriter wanted to take his name off of it 
And then when it was nominated for an Academy Award, he put his name back on it, although there was very little of his original text left in what we did. That must have been excited to be a part of it. For the Smothers Brothers, you were you were part of the writing room? Yes, yes. The Smothers had inherited their time slot to produce their own summer replacement. So they picked Glenn Campbell and did the Summer Brothers Smothers show starring Glenn Campbell hired a bunch of new young writers. One writer was a holdover from their CBS season. That was Lorenzo Music, who was my partner at the time. And then also hired in that that same little rush of newbies was Steve Martin and Bob Einstein and who else? Uh, Murray Roman, a guy named Paul Wayne. Anyway, a, a bunch of smart young writers, and we had a great time. And then in the fall, they picked us all up for their regular Smothers Brothers CBS show, uh, which was nominated for and won an Emmy. But between the time it was nominated and the time it won, it was canceled. <laughs> that happens too too often to the to the good shows. So Bob Einstein, Super Dave Osborne, yes? Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's, cool. that's a hell of a room. Bob well, Einstein, Steve Martin. Did you say Rob Reiner? Was Rob Reiner part of that? Uh, Rob Reiner, Steve Martin, Bob Einstein, me, comedian named Murray Roman, another writer named Paul Wayne, who did most of Pat Paulson's material. I, I forget all the names are on the Emmy. I could go get the statue. <laughs> I was hoping you'd just be holding it and you'd just be. <laughs> and I try not to pose with my statues. How many of those? No, I, have, I, I just have the Emmy. Just have the Emmy. Got of of the ones that are still with us, uh, do you do you still talk at all ever with Rob Reiner or Steve Martin or not that often? Facebook friends, anything? <laughs> no, we've you know we've all gone our separate ways. Rob is uh, you know intensely occupied with politics, and uh, Steve Martin is Steve Martin. He's a writer. You know he's he's writing. He's playing banjo. He's you know writing novels. He's married. He has a kid. You know. Though we were all single guys at the time, you know, we had one or two married writers in the room who used to complain because the single guys, we didn't care. We'd stay up on rewrite nights until, you know, two, three in the morning. And the married guys said, come on, we got family to go to. Carl Reiner, though, you when you wrote you wrote The Jerk, you you went on to write The Jerk with Steve Martin. Mm -hmm. And Michael. Yes. Michael. And then and Carl Reiner, Rob's. Carl, direct, Carl directed and contributed a lot of visual gags. Yes. When you were there, did you know? Did you have this feeling that you were creating no. this crazy thing no. that was going to no. be so special? No. And like nobody, nobody knew. Nobody knew when I was making Jaws that it was going to be a hit. Nobody knew when we were doing the Smothers show uh, if we were a hit or not. We got good Nielsen ratings, but the network canceled us anyway. So what it was like was a wonderful job with wonderful coworkers doing work that I loved, which was, you know, writing comedy or, and performing, doing sketch comedy. So what it was like was, was, uh, was like, you know, living my life as a 32-year-old Hollywood writer, actor, uh, and later, later to become a director. But at that time, I was a writer and an actor, and I was writing and acting. You couldn't ask. You know, I was making money doing what I love to do. How many people can say that? Not many. I was lucky when I got out of college in the winter of 1960, I made a vow. The only like vow I made to myself was I'm, if I can possibly avoid it, I will not do anything but work in my chosen profession, which was journalism and theater. I'm only going to work in show business or writing. 
I'm not going to be a bartender, a cab driver, carpenter, a merchant marine, uh, office temp. Uh, I'm not going to sell Amway. Uh, I'm going to just do what I, if I can possibly make a living at it, that's what I want to do. So I didn't take any other jobs. And I guess sometimes I'd be working for 25 bucks a week at meals at a coffee house and off off Broadway in New York. But I was getting paid for what I did. I had a roommate. We had a $65 a month apartment. It was easy to live. Unemployment was $52. was, 50, I think, 50 bucks a week, 52 bucks a week for 50 weeks. You could live on that. And I went from one job to another. Each job led to something else. Somebody, somebody saw my work or I worked with somebody and they said, hey, would you like to do this with me? And I would say yes. And then off I'd go. And you know, Steve Martin said, would you like, you know, I got a deal to write a movie at Paramount. Do you want to write it with me? And I said, yes. And so we wrote The Jerk. You know, the, at the time it was uneventful, except that it was really good it was good luck to be in for me to be in show business with those friends at that time. You know, at the time, it was just going from one job to another. I like to think that I was, when I chose to do something, I was doing it with good people. You know, I did who asked me to do something was important, as important as what they asked me to do. I mean, if a, if a putz producer asked me to write a ripoff of Jaws, I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't take that job. And I, I had the luxury of turning down jobs. Uh, I didn't have to take everything that came along. And that's a luxury. If you're not driven by you know, starvation or need or you don't have a family to support. I never had children. My wife had, had her own business. Our income was sufficient for our needs. And you know, I didn't, didn't get rich, but I was able to take whatever job came along. And whenever a job came along, my criteria for taking it was, have I done this before? So when it was, if it was writing television sitcoms, I had done that, and I didn't focus on that. If I had stayed in television just writing sitcoms, I'd probably be very rich now because I, chances are I would have created a show and been a showrunner and, and, you know, made a fortune in television. And I took good jobs that came along. And, you know, I, I was lucky. Uh, the projects turned out to be iconic. I mean, I also wrote some bad screenplays at that time that never got made, but I got paid for them. I got paid for everything. There are two kinds of writers. There are deadline writers and habitual writers. Stephen King is a habitual writer. He wakes up in the morning, he's got to write 500 or 1,000 words before he goes to sleep. And he does, so he does. And consequently, he has a sizable body of work because he just keeps writing. Deadline writers like me, we only write when there's a paycheck involved and uh, and we're not going to get that check until we turn in a script. So that's when we write. It's, it's a painful, lonely process that we avoid writing as much as possible. I describe the process as you're making ever-decreasing concentric circles around the keyboard until there's no place else left to go. <laughs> and then you write. And if you write, if you hit writer's block, this is advice to young writers, if you get blocked and you're in the process of writing, then whatever you're blocked on, you put it aside for a second and write a shopping list, write a letter to a friend, write a, a funny post for Facebook, write something, but just keep writing. Keep, and then eventually you'll get back on track and you'll go back to the screenplay or the novel or whatever it is you're writing. If you must write, write. But if you're not being paid for it, why bother? That's great advice. Thank you very much. You're welcome. 
you mentioned director. So you directed and wrote, you worked with Beatle, Ringo, <laughs> right? And you're a caveman. That's pretty exciting. From Crack, that's where Ringo met. That's where he met Barbara. They got, I, I, I'm responsible for two celebrity marriages, Ringo and Barbara and uh, Dan Aykroyd and Donna Dixon. Is that from Dr. Detroit? Dr. Detroit. <laughs> That's why I wore my Detroit stuff. So I was like, <laughs> you, you, you wrote Dr. Detroit? I rewrote it. You rewrote it. Do you, do you come in a lot? Cause like, and find that people ask you to restructure things, yep. rewrite it. Cause like Jaws, you Jaws, that's what you do with Jaws, right? What I was really good at was, you know, collaborating and fixing stuff. I was, you know, kind of like a play doctor. I could look at something and kind of see what was wrong and suggest what, could be done to fix it. And then I could implement that decision because I, I couldn't just analyze. I could then write based on my analysis and uh, with luck, whatever it is that I wrote was better than what they had. And that was, that's what they shot. What's one of the great things about being on location, doing a rewrite, nobody's going to rewrite you after the fact. I mean, you know, you, you turn in your pages and then they shoot them. So in that respect, it's like television because, uh, which is one of the reasons why television is the most interesting writing that's being done these days is because the people who are writing it are talented, they're productive, there's not a lot of second guessing, you write it, you shoot it, you go on to the next. That way you get a body of work, you get episodes, you, you know, you get evolving characters and if, if you're lucky, the, the product is something like, you know, MASH or All in the Family or Everybody Loves Raymond or NCIS, so, you know, pick a series that's been on the air for 10 years and you'll see some great writing. Some of the best writing being done these days is done in television, not in features. It seems that's where everyone, all the, the actors want to be at on one of these great television shows. It used to, I feel like growing up, when I was growing up, it was the opposite. Like you would never see a famous, like a, a famous movie actor on TV. Yeah, no, that, that was in, in the three network universe. Television was the trenches and features was, you know, what we all aspired to. In the 40 years since then, features got worse and worse and became comic books and remakes and rewrites and prequels and sequels. And all the good writers drifted into television where the writer is God King. In movies, the director is God King. And that's why I became a director. I, you know, I wanted to get some of that authority that I never had as a writer. Because as a writer, you know, you're lucky if you're even invited to the set. But if you're a director, you know, you make every decision. So that's a reason to be a director, so you can control the product. Every writer should, in the middle, even if they're not writing, if they're, if they're not hired to direct a script, every writer, when they're writing a script, a fairy godmother should come along and say, okay, now you're the director, direct the 12 pages you just wrote. And then you see what the problems are. You know, I, I have been on a set with a script that I wrote, and I've said out loud, you know, who wrote this shit? You know, <laughs> how am I supposed to get these four actors in the frame at the same time? Who put, who put them all in the room? Oh, I did as a writer. It's a great education is to have to direct what you write so you see the problems, before, you know, that the, the directors face. And that's why being an actor is the best job of all, because you don't have to worry about anything. You just have to get there and memorize your lines and hit your marks. They take you to a dressing room, they feed you, 
put you in hair and makeup. They walk you to the set. They say, stand here. Director gives you uh, action. You say your words. And when you're done, you go home. You don't have to worry about editing or cutting or any of that. So you, you have a career where you kind of like were one of those, you kind of balance all of those at different times. I've, I've done it all. Yeah, you were acting, you were then writing, directing. Producing. Producing. So was it kind of cathartic to be able to go from one to, the, okay, I'm just going to act in this one and then, you know, coming off a direct, you know, like, is it, no, was no. it nice having all those skills that you could just kind of choose and balance your life like that? keep explaining it was a job it was a skill set that i had acquired over a long period of time uh, everything i did in my life was focused on entertainment is this entertaining is this funny should i do this can i make this funnier that was my job in life uh, and i was lucky enough to get paid well for it but i was doing what i always wanted to do which was make entertainment no no coward who was a, a protean talent from your distant past. Noel Coward once, somebody asked him about his skills, his set, skill set. And he, he was kind of self-deprecating. He said, I have a talent to abuse. I like that. Of course, yeah. he, of course he was Noel Coward, you know. <laughs> and the talent was considerable and the amusement, you know, so the plays and the music that he wrote is still out there today. So, you know, we're, 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 we're lucky. We're lucky about that. So I, if, it, if anything, I have a talent to muse. I'm in the I'm in the entertainment business. I provide entertainment any way I can. We we once uh, we were watching a late night movie, a Gypsy Wildcat or something. It was a funny movie, and the hero is masquerading or he's he's hiding out with a troop of gypsies. Right, the troop of gypsies is called to the court of the wicked count to entertain him in his castle. Which puts the uh, leading man in jeopardy because he's you know he's not really a, a gypsy but he's just traveling with them, right? So that's the setup. So at one point he says to the gypsy queen, he says they're, they're going to ask me to to do something. They're going to ask me to perform. What sh- what should I do? And she says, do anything, make faces, act crazy. Well, I took that to heart. <laughs> <laughs> And now we, we wrote that down. We had it on a piece of paper backstage at the committee in the 60s. It says, do anything, act crazy, make faces. It's as good a recipe for performance success as anything. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that the name of this podcast <laughs> episode. <laughs> That's good stuff. In terms of like, uh, I, know, I, know you, I know you look at them as jobs and stuff like that. So, but is there any of the, of the ones that you look back like on the acting that you did, Mork and Mindy, MASH? I, I, I look at my work in the committee as the most productive and the most fun that I've had in my life to this day. Okay. we got to remember, we were doing two shows a night, three on Saturday. We worked in a 350-seat theater with a liquor license. We played to college, anybody, everybody from college students to you know senior citizens. We were to hit, so people came to the show with an expectation that they would laugh, which you know, we tried to fulfill. And, you know, half the time we were flying by the seat of our pants doing improvisations, you know, making stuff up we had never done before, relying on our skills as performers and our cooperation as uh, members of a company to make it all work. And 80, 90 percent of the time it did work. And that was very gratifying. I mean, if you did a good show, 
there's no better feeling at the end of the evening. You know, you're high. You don't. You can't go home and go to sleep after a good show. You go out. You eat. You talk with your friends. You go to a party. Uh, you go on a date. Maybe you sleep with somebody till dawn. You know, you. That was. It was the best time of my life, both in San Francisco and in L.A. Because I was working every night doing what I loved, and and I was doing it in, in the company of people who are my friends, who are my family to this day, the ones who are still alive, and with uh, no there was there was no network, there was no supervision. We had a director who suggested cuts and things to do, and we were relied on each other to be supportive and give us joke lines or setups or suggest actions. It was intensely collaborative. It had to be collaborative because that's the nature of improvisation. You cooperate or you die. And the result is, I mean, you can. there was a, a movie made of what we did. It was called A Session with the Committee. Basically a film of a, one of our performances in the evening, you know, edited and cut for something called Electronovision, which was, you know, basically a video a record of a, of a stage show. They came to the theater, set up three, four cameras and basically shot our show, and then cut it together like a movie. And it was you know, successful for what it was. Technologically, it was primitive. Like most live theater, you know, there's not a lot of record of live theater. There's a company called Fathom Entertainment, which records Broadway shows and does a very good job of it, and I recommend them. But if, unless Fathom is shooting it, every performance disappears into history. It just becomes word of mouth. We did a show once in Austin, Texas, the committee. We did a two-act show. It was very successful. And we did it in a field house. There were like 3,000 people there. They were clamoring for more. So instead of doing a few scenes as an encore, we did a, a long-form improvisation that we called a Harold, which Del Close made famous in Chicago later. Instead of an encore, we did a half-hour, 35-minute long-form improvisation based on some suggestions we got from the audience. And it was one of those magical evenings where everything went right. We were able to do new improvisation. We wove tested material into the improv to get certain laughs. And to this day, well, not to this day, but as recently as 10, 15 years ago, I will run into people who say, you know, I saw you guys in Austin, Texas. You were really good. And I have to tell them, you don't know how good we were that night. That was the best we've ever been. And it was, you know, it was a superlative evening. Some shows that stand out in your mind. That sounds amazing. Larry Larry Hankin also spoke very highly of that time and you. We We were friends in college. We were roommates in Greenwich Village. He got me into the committee. They needed a stage manager. I was visiting him in San Francisco when he was with the company. Yeah, no, we're still, and, and we're still friends. He always made, he made a, a point when we were talking to talk about you, tell me how you guys came over together, all that kind of good stuff. He had those those memories of that are are really good for him too. It, it was it's it's fun. It's because it's raw, right? I mean that that's probably the difference. It was you. It was you guys and the collective and the synergy of that group. Versus, I guess, if you're acting and they hand you a script and they say, here, just say this, it's a different high to execute someone else's words and yeah. pull it off. I mean, it's still versus like your own thing. So yeah. that's very cool. You've done so much. So Jaws, that's, that's your... <laughs> don't, don't, don't ask me what it was like. It I'm was not going to ask you what it was like. I'm it, was gonna like... it was a job. I, I got hired on the last minute's notice. I was hired as an actor first. 
Then I was hired to do a rewrite. I got paid very little money for acting and writing. All the money that I made from Jaws, I made from the Jaws log. I'll put a plug of that in the show notes. Must read. I believe it's considered one of the best recaps yeah. of any movies ever made. It, it is that. It's the yes. And it's the best-selling book about the making of a movie ever in history, ever. Okay, so I'm going to ask, I just have one question on okay. Jaws then, okay? Because I don't want to ask you how it's like, because I don't care how it was like. <laughs> I'm just kidding, it was a joke. Uh, the uh, Roy Scheider's line, <laughs> we're going to need a bigger boat. Is that is that improv or was that scripted? There's a, compl- there's a complicated history to that. I'm still learning about it. For years, I disclaimed responsibility. I said, Roy ad-libbed that line, period. Don't give me credit for it. What I did as a writer was I created a fully dimensional character that Roy could inhabit. And when it came time to make up words, he would make them up in character and appropriate to the situation, which a lot of actors don't do. They just make up words so they'll have more to say. But Roy, you know, so that's what I said for decades. Then one year, there was a Blu-ray DVD with additional materials that included a documentary on the making of Jaws uh, shot with Roy while he was still alive. And in that documentary, he says how that line became a catchphrase on the set when anything went wrong because they had some technical difficulties with a boat, uh, the support boat for the for the Orca. And we needed a bigger boat and we were pursuing, or the, the crew was constantly after the producers to, to get a bigger boat. So whenever anything happened, when a light fell down or camera ran out of film or the shark wouldn't work, somebody would always say, we're going to need a bigger boat. It just happened that when Roy said that line, he said it out of context. He had The film had not been edited yet, so we didn't know he had just seen the shark a moment earlier, come down here and chum some of this shit for a while, which is a laugh line, followed by a shock reveal of the shark followed by a cut to the interior where he comes in and says, we're going to need a bigger boat. And it's the combination of the editing and the moment that makes that memorable line that it is. That, well, that, that's very cool in terms of, uh, I, I tell you, on Twitter, we, we play these hashtag games all the time, and it's like a race to like kind of <laughs> mash in that, that famous line from Jaws. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a very popular favorite and a popular GIF on Twitter. <laughs> it's like... So, okay, so that's amazing. All right, so that's a good story for the, the, we got a bigger boat. You actually lived with Steven Spielberg during this entire process of, of writing, of rewriting. We shared a house on the vineyard. And you guys were friends yes. before this? I had acted in a couple of his TV movies. We had the same agent. We had worked on writing some projects together that we couldn't sell because if the, one of the conditions was that if we sold it, Steve would be locked in as director and nobody would take a chance. No one could take a chance on little old Stevie Spielberg. <laughs> See, when you hear it now, it sounds crazy, right? <laughs> Even Michelangelo had to struggle to get his first commission. Everyone had to start somewhere. Is there anything in the movie that was that you didn't rewrite? I mean, that was in the version that you took over from? Or what, did you kind of scrub the whole thing? Well, we, we uh, uh, the, the, basically what we did was we scrubbed a lot of the uh, superfluous stuff. There was a, in the novel, there's a subplot about the mayor and the mafia and real estate development and all that other stuff. 
And it was extraneous. And there was a, a love affair between Hooper and the chief's wife. I mean, there was a lot of crap that was okay. It was, you know, the novel was a bestseller. You know, we didn't have to do anything to make it a hit bestseller. But we did have to make considerable changes to streamline it and make it an engaging film. And toward that end, Stephen and I would, you know, spend every waking minute talking about the changes we had made, the changes we were going to make. Verna Fields, who won an Academy Award for editing that, was present for all those creative sessions. And she would remind us of editorial things we had to keep in mind. You know, if you change this, you're going to have to change that over there in order to make, you know, with that really good collaborative exchange of of, uh, ideas and materials, the script took great shape and was Verna was cutting along as we were making the movie. She was cutting it. I mean, I've seen it many years, even recently. I, I feel like it's it's like one of those movies that you watch it now and it's like, this could have been made exactly like this now. Like it holds up. Like sometimes you watch an older movie. The only thing is the, the clothes and the hairstyles are a little dated and sure. there's no cell phones. <laughs> true, but true. Those exceptions, the human values play out. And, and one of the things about... Uh, resort community like Martha's Vineyard, you know, it's like a little rich people on the East Coast wear the same clothes that they wore to Harvard in 1950. If you're anywhere in that part of the country and you've got chinos and boat shoes and a blue Oxford shirt, it could be 1945, it could be 1955, it could be 2025. Some things never change. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But it's 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 just so good, it's so good. And that was the first blockbuster too, right? So that was like the whole marketing behind that movie set it. I mean, besides it just being one of the, the greatest movies ever, just it kind of just Jaws is a landmark movie for for several reasons. I mean, one, it's a you know, it's a well made movie. It's a great audience pleasing movie. No, no, we we know that. All you have to do is screen it for an audience anywhere in the world. It works as an entertainment, but it also was a marketing breakthrough for the studio. And I got to give credit to Sid Scheinberg and Hi Martin and Lou Wasserman, who had the courage and the impulse to release it on 400 screens at the same time, which in those days was unheard of. Nowadays, picture comes out on 3,000 screens. <laughs> right. 400 today would be a limited release. <laughs> in those days, 400 was pretty dramatic. And it, Amazing. It, it grew to 480 or 490, something like that. And then the gamble paid off and the grosses reflected the additional sources of income. Because in those days, even, you know, Sound of Music opened downtown in a big theater and played there for eight months before it went out to the neighborhood theaters. And if you lived in, you know, bumfuck Idaho, you didn't see a hit movie until a year after it was released in Chicago. So Jaws changed all that happily. So... What else? Do you have like a specific memory of Jaws? Like your favorite, a favorite scene? I know you were in it, but <laughs> besides, besides uh, uh, the scenes with Meadows. <laughs> I have two scenes that I'm very proud of. One is when Mrs. Kintner slaps Roy Scheider on the dock and admonishes him for keeping the beaches open when he knew they should have been closed. She said the lines exactly as written. So I got to compliment the actor on that. And similarly, the scene with Dreyfus and Scheider and Mayor Vaughn out by the billboard when they've got, they've just discovered Ben Gardner's boat and they've had the shock of seeing the head in the boat, finding the shark tooth, but he does, he dropped the shark tooth so he doesn't have the evidence. That scene is, again, 
the lines are delivered as written. The director did a great job of photographing it. It's like one or two takes that continually move from a two shot to a three shot to a master to a back to a two shot. It's Steven Spielberg and his most fluid camera direction. And everybody says the words right. And it's a, those two scenes are, are scenes that I always enjoy when I'm in a theater watching. I also enjoy the morning scene when they wake up because I think a lot is accomplished in a very few minutes uh, after Chrissy's death. Masterclass. And then Robert Shaw's Indianapolis speech that just you went on record as saying he kind of wrote yep. that final version. Yes. Is that it? You get a guy with a pedigree like that. He can, he can put yeah, the words well, together. Howard Sackler <laughs> discovered the incident the, of the Indianapolis and he correctly saw that in the novel, the character of Quint is completely unexplained. He's just, you know, a blank slate. Nobody knows why he feels the way he does about sharks. So Sackler stole this account of the Indianapolis, cribbed a scene from a book called uh, Shark Attack, I think, or Shark, that was written in the 60s, elements of that book that turn up in the Sackler's draft. And then I, I, I worked on it, and everybody worked on it. Spielberg was nervous about it. It was two pages of dialogue or monologue. And he asked all his friends to take a crack at it. But it was Shaw who put all the different versions together and delivered the goods. All credit to Shaw. All credit to Shaw. And so anyway, amazing. This is the whole between Dreyfus, Shaw, Roy. I mean, it was just an incredible, incredible movie. And of course, you as Meadows. It was a <laughs> how much did you 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 were brought in for two and three to do rewrites, yeah. right? <laughs> the, uh, two felt like more of an extension than three was kind of a time jump at SeaWorld. I see you 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 stayed away from four. <laughs> I have never uh, seen it. <laughs> you know, I just read that Michael Caine, who stars in it, never saw it either. <laughs> I feel like every so if you can say like every shark movie that's ever that you're gonna hate if you hate this question, just plead the fifth. <laughs> I feel like every shark movie that's come after it's it's just derivative of jaws is there any of them though that you like maybe heard of or know that you were like i understand deep blue sea is pretty good oh yeah when when samuel l jackson gets killed it's uh, sorry spoilers but the uh yeah it's there's some good scenes you know years ago when i was first starting out and i had worked a lot in tele variety television i had worked a lot with music acts right so even uh, before Jaws and certainly after Jaws, people would approach me to write a movie about, an, about a band, about a music group. Alice Cooper, uh, different, different bands whose managers wanted. And because the, band, you know, the bands had a lot of clout. They would, you know, they, if you had a double platinum record, you, know, you could get a movie made. And I would have to kind of shake my head and explain that in the genre about movies about bands, Hard Day's Night, set the bar. It just happened that the first the first one was the best ever. You can't you know you can't improve on the Beatles and Richard Lester in Hard Day's Night. You just can't. You know, they got it they got it, it was like Jaws. They got it right first time out of the box. Every band movie afterwards couldn't make it. I mean, you know, even the remake of Star is born. You know, there's it, you know there was there've been big budget efforts, there've been low budget, there's been ethnic efforts, you know, uh the Fat Boys made a movie. I mean, every every band, a lot of bands have tried to make movies, but sadly, they got it right the first time. So with, with shark movies, for a combination of, you know, 
luck, chance, hard work, studio interference, genius editing, genius music score, genius director. And the first one was the best. You know, there's the, the rest are just imitations. You can't top it. Even Spielberg couldn't top himself on that one. Well, amen to that. And then uh, hit it, if you're going to get it right, get it right the first time. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we got lucky. Everything worked. That doesn't happen. There's too many variables in show business. It just happened to you know, work. The actors were great. The chemistry between the actors, locations, the editing, you know, the score was brilliant. You know, like you said, we got it right the first time. Oh, yeah. As a kid, like, I couldn't get into a pool without hearing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jeff, 45 years when I tell people I, I wrote Jaws, their first oh, time, I, know. I said, I oh, after I saw that movie, I didn't know any water. And I have to go, yeah, I know. You did. You messed up everyone. True. Who am I going to tell? I'm, I'm talking to talking to you. So I'm, don't expect <laughs> me to be surprised. No, I don't expect. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> it had that much of an effect on you? Oh my goodness. <laughs> You're the best. I love how straight. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so that's good. So uh, all right. When you when you want people to look back on on your on your legacy, like what. Is is Jaws how you want to be remembered, or do you do you want to be remembered from a comedy point of view? We are remembered for what we did, for better or worse. Jaws being an iconic film, everybody in the world has seen at least once. You know, yeah, that and and you like I say, you can't plan for that; it just happens. Uh, that's that's why Steven Spielberg is such a genius. If you adjust for inflation, I think six of the top ten grossing movies of all time are Steven Spielberg movies. And that includes Gone with the Wind and Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 and Sound of Music. Well, if you're going to if you're going to hang with anyone and collaborate with anyone, Steven Spielberg's, you know, <laughs> you've collaborated with every like genius in every in every genre, so it's amazing. I appreciate you taking time to talk to me. This is incredible. I really 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 appreciate it. <laughs> How can people you you got the book, yes. Jaws Log? And I'll, I'll put a note of that in the, in the show notes. Available so on that. Amazon or A Libris or any place books are sold. Go to your bookstore and get a copy of the Jaws Log. If they don't have it, make them order it. HarperCollins will be happy to send you a copy. Very cool. And then do you hang on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of I'm, those? You know, I'm on Facebook. My post office box and an address. You can write to me and send me copies of stuff and I'll autograph them and send them back. Got it. All right. I'm going to buy a book and I'm going to send it to you. Please so you do. I'll have to send it right back. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Well, that was fun talking to Carl Gottlieb, comedic legend, writing legend, directing legend. Ah, so that was so cool. So if you want to hear a couple more stories about Carl, check out episode 11, my conversation with Larry Hankin. As you heard from Carl, they were roommates and Larry loves talking about Carl and had a couple cool stories to share as well during that interview. So check that out. And then just for a matter of record, I did buy a couple copies of the Jaws log. I did mail them to Carl. He did sign them and send them back. And one's hanging on my wall. I'll put a picture of it, of the autograph on my Twitter page at Jeff Dewaskin show sometime during this week. Now it's time for the hashtag roundup spotlight of the week. 
in honor of Carl Gottlieb, writer of the Jaws movie. He also wrote The Jerk, also responsible for the Optograb. We dug into the archives for a game we did for the 42nd anniversary of Jaws, so it's a few years ago, but it's a perfect spot-on one. It was hashtag Jaws taught us. So what better hashtag than the one that goes with the interview with Carl Gottlieb, screenwriter of Jaws. Hashtag Jaws taught us. And as always, these tweets will be found at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter. Retweet these good folks. Show them some love. Their tweets will also be listed in the show notes. So definitely check that out as well. All right, here we go. Hashtag Jaws taught us. The world just isn't ready to embrace a man-eating shark. It's sad. You think after this many years they would be. A thousand and one men went into the water. Three hundred and sixteen men came out, and the sharks took the rest. That's right. Jaws taught us the story of the USS Indianapolis. Quint, Robert Shaw talked about. We talked about that during the interview. But that is a real story, so you can check that out. Hashtag Jaws taught us the way to go home. Ah, great song, great scene. Hashtag Jaws taught us your boat is probably never big enough. So true. So true. Hashtag Jaws taught us not all sharks are as nice as the left one that performed with Katy Perry. So true. So true. Jaws taught us kicking sharks is not an effective defense. So sorry, Quint. So sorry that didn't work out for you. Hashtag Jaws taught us not to elect real estate developers to public office. Ah, that one hit just a little too close to home. Hashtag Joss taught us closing the beaches in the peak of the season is a bad financial decision, even if some customers never come back. So true. So true. That's not paralleled now with the pandemic at all, is it? Hashtag Jaws taught us, if you hear a cello while swimming, get the fuck out of the water. (laughs) Oh, man. So much that we have learned from this great movie, Jaws, so much. Well, that's the end of another episode of The Jeff Duoskin Show. I'm Jeff Duoskin. I can't thank you enough for joining us and sticking with us through these 26 episodes. Subscribe, like, tell your friends, go to jeffisfunny.com, sign up for my mailing list for special emails, lots of cool stuff. All right, tell all your friends, do your thing, and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.